Well, it is certainly an exciting time of the year. It's the time that we refer to as the Advent, as Advent. It's a time of preparation, a time of great anticipation in so many ways. It's a time that reminds us that we live as a people between the times. The, a time when, when Christ first came as a baby at Christmas and the time when Christ will come again in his second coming, when he will come and restore all things to, to, to God and make all things new. Well, as we continue our Advent series, looking at the Christ of Christmas, we will be moving from the Garden of Eden, where we were last week, where we, where we got to see the first promise of Christmas, and we're going to move to another promise that we find in Micah 5, 1 through 5. I invite you now to stand for the reading of God's word. Beginning in chapter 5 of Micah, verse 1. Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore, he shall be given up, given, give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. And he shall be their peace. Pray with me, Father, Lord. We, we take this word now and we, we ask that you would speak through it this morning. That you would challenge our, our aching and hearts this morning. That we would know the hope that is contained in this promise. And that we'd be transformed by it. We pray all this in the mighty name of Christ. Amen. You may be seated. The date was October 29th. 1929, also known as Black Tuesday, not to be confused with Black Friday, very different dates. It was the day that the New York Stock Exchange had crashed, triggering an e a period of time in our nation of econo economic uh, uh, turmoil uh, that, like our nation has never seen before. We refer to this time period as the Great Depression it's a time that was marked by hardship, by distress, by uncertainty. After the crash happened, a, a wave of panic spread across the nation. Consumer confidence plummeted, spending investment declined, uh, production slowed, unemployment skyrocketed. In fact, at the height of the Depression in 1933, over a quarter of the workforce was without a job. Over 13 million people, right? These are people, by the way, that, that wanted to work, that were longing to work, but couldn't work. Uh, on top of that, there's the bank crisis. Uh, the, with the stock market crash, a lot of the banks were, were struggling confidence in the banks and their ability to stand plummeted. People began mobbing and rushing to the banks in order to hopefully get out their, their savings, their life savings, so that they can survive this period of uncertainty. 
As a result, by the height of the depression, thousands of banks were forced to close their doors. It's a horrible time. As our country was facing all of these things, on the brink of homelessness, economic collapse, unemployment, President Franklin D. Roosevelt was sworn into office. Anticipating the challenge before him, he compared it to a, a house of cards that could come down, collapsing down on him at any moment before he even takes his inaugural office. You can imagine a, a firefighter being dropped into the middle of a nationwide firefight with families, homes, and even the very nation at stake. This is the scenario that he was thrown into. The pressure must have felt overwhelming. With every passing moment, people were facing joblessness. Homes were facing bankruptcy. Families faced hunger. Confronted with this uncertainty and this real possibility of failure, they had no idea that this was gonna, whether this was going to succeed or not. The, stacks were, the stakes were high, and President FDR and his administration felt the weight of the world. To say that Hezekiah, the king of Judah at the time of our passage, found himself in a similar position would be a tremendous understatement. Hezekiah and the people of Judah found themselves in the walls of Jerusalem, surrounded by an army of 185,000 Assyrians. Inside the walls, they had food and water, but supplies were dwindling quickly depleting with time, with every passing second. Their opponent was engaging them in what is known as siege warfare. It literally takes hunger and it turns it into a weapon. All they had to do was wait them out. Wait until they either died or they surrendered themselves. This is exactly the scenario that we find depicted in verse 1 of our passage. If you look there with me here, look what it says. It says, now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod, they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. The us in this passage is the kingdom of Judah. They were under siege by the Assyrians. The judge in this case was the king, King Hezekiah. Hezekiah had been struck on the cheek. This is a phrase that was meant to embody and communicate just great uh, humility or hum humiliation, excuse me, and dishonor. It was a phrase that was meant to show that they, they had nothing to offer. They were helpless. Their backs were against the wall. This was the now situation that Judah found themselves in when Micah gives this prophecy. And so the question for us is, how did they get here? What led to this point in their history? Since we uh, just did a sermon series on the life of Elijah and Elisha, uh, a lot of this will be a review to you. But big picture, you have to remember, the kingdom is divided at this point in history. Israel is to the north, Judah is to the south. The major power at this time were the Assyrians. Both Israel and Judah had fallen into various forms of idolatry, false worship. They, instead of turning to Yahweh, their God, they had turned to other nations for help and refuge and began worshiping these nations' gods. 
And so God, in response, sent his prophets. He sent Elijah and Elisha, and among others, later he would send Amos and Hosea and Isaiah and Micah in order to call them to repent and to turn back to their God. But the prophets were ignored. They were rejected. And so because of their blatant idolatry and disregard for the prophets, God would bring his judgment. And his judgment would come forth from the Assyrians. The Assyrians would be the the might, the hammer of God that would come upon them. Assyria would rise to power, becoming the, the, the most powerful nation at the time. They would conquer the northern kingdom of Israel, including its capital, Samaria, in 722. And now, the southern kingdom of Judah, nearly 20 years later, after the fall of, of Israel, would be facing the similar fate. That is where we find ourselves this morning in our passage. Under siege by the Assyrians, facing God's judgment, surrounded by the most effective, efficient, terrifying army that the ancient Near Middle East had ever seen. The kingdom of Judah had their backs against the wall. They were helpless, overwhelmed, and hungry. Outside of a miracle, The only option seemed to be to either turn themselves over to the Assyrians, roll the dice, if you will, or die of starvation. Siege warfare was no joke. If you remember David two weeks ago when he was preaching on on this topic, he talked about this idea of siege warfare. He mentioned U.S. grants and how that's exactly what U.S. grant did to Vicksburg, right? Vicksburg, he employed the strategy of siege warfare. And there were diaries that he had mentioned of the people of Vicksburgs. And they, they wrote how times were so desperate that they ended up resorting to eating their own pets, their own cats and dogs, because starvation was such a real thing. The temptation to throw in the towel would have been very real in this situation, right? The pressure would have been mounting. Every single growing second would have intensified the situation. As you read the account of this situation in 2 Kings and 2 Chronicles and Isaiah, it's hard not to, to feel the desperation of the people that are trapped behind these walls, surrounded by the enemy of Assyria these feelings of hopelessness and despairs, that this really might be the end for Judah. This might be it. It might be over at this point. And Assyria plays right into this. They play right into their fears, into their weakness, into their powerlessness, deploying every single tactic imaginable in order to get them to back down and come out. The Assyrian, in the account, as you read about it in these passages, the Assyrian field commander is standing outside the walls of Jerusalem and he's shouting and speaking loud enough that the people within inside, the ones that are shaking and starving and fearful, can hear his very words. And he is using all kinds of tactics. He threw bombs of doubt, saying things like, God isn't gonna save you. Who are you kidding yourself? You think God's really on your side? Who do you think sent me here? He's with me. He's on my side. Don't believe the words of Hezekiah, your leader. Don't believe him. He's telling you that the Lord's gonna come. Just trust him, trust him. These are false words of hope. It's not gonna come true. He knows it. Y'all are hopeless. You're helpless. He used tactics of intimidation as if to like kind of throw out his resume to to the town. He boasted of his, his victories, of his track record, 
his victories over the, the city of Hamath, the, the, his victories over Arpad and Samaria. Samaria is, was Israel. That was the capital of Israel. And here he is, he says to them, were, were there, as if to say, were you, were, where were their gods when, when I took them over? Were they able to save them? What makes you think that you're any different? They're not gonna save you. The Lord's not gonna deliver you. He even used more positive ta- tactics. He tried tactics of enticement, right? He kind of uh, changing his tune, you know, like, and he comes out saying things like, all right, let's, let's just start over. I didn't mean the things I said, you know. Uh, come out, we'll let you live, right? We, we will, we'll give you a nice hot meal, We'll give you something to drink. And then after a little bit, once you're well and fed and, and your thirst is quenched, we'll, we'll take you back to Assyria. And by the way, here's a travel brochure. Uh, Assyria is a land flowing with honey. It's got vineyard after vineyard and wine. It's, the, it's a land of bread. Come on, come over here. Just open the door and come on out. Right? He tried everything. He employed all these tactics to get them to surrender. If these tactics sound familiar, it's because they are. We are bombarded with them all the time in our lives. We are bombarded by them when our marriages are difficult. And there's an attractive coworker who makes us feel good who uh, makes us feel significant, who appreciates who we really are and seems to just really get it. And we think, well, maybe this is who I really need. And you begin contemplating leaving your wife or family. We're bombarded by them in, in our singleness. We long to marry. You pray for a husband or a wife. Time continues just to slip through your fingers. 25 turns to 30, 30 turns to 35, and you begin to wonder, is the Lord ever going to provide? Is he ever going to provide someone for me? Will I always remain single? Finally, you meet someone. They're good looking, right? They're kind, they're nice, they have a great job, they're supportive, but they're not a believer. And so you begin to think, well, At least I won't be alone. At least I won't be by myself anymore. Besides, Christian marriage is overrated anyways. And so you begin taking steps towards marriage. We face these tactics and temptation and just in in every kind of way, as, as workers, as students, the deadline's approaching on a paper or an assignment and you begin to consider, well, I don't have anything. Maybe I plagiarize. Right? We think about our business dealings. Maybe we can just cut some corners, make some unethical decisions right? in order to avoid financial loss or failure. We face these tactics all the time in big ways and small ways, and these are real temptations. This is the temptation that is before Hezekiah and the people of Judah. Real temptations in the face of desperation and uncertainty. The question before us is, what will Hezekiah do? How will he respond? Will Hezekiah be steadfast and trust in the Lord or will he be persuaded by the words of the field commander and give in? Well, surrounded by the most effective and efficient and terrifying army that in the middle, the ancient Near East had ever known, amazingly, by the grace of God, Hezekiah turns to the Lord in prayer. 
Inside the city walls, the prophet Isaiah is there. And through the prophet Isaiah, Hezekiah is told that the Lord has heard his prayer. The Lord is not only going to deliver Hezekiah and the people of Judah, but not only that, he's going to one-up it. He's going to up the ante. He's going to show them that he can do incredible things. He says, not even an arrow is going to come against this city. Before a shot is even fired, Assyria is going to pack their bags and they're going to leave and you're going to come out safely. That's the promise that, he, that Hezekiah is given to Hezekiah. It's remarkable. If you read this story, uh, shortly after the Lord speaks through his prophet, the an, an angel of the Lord, the angel of the Lord comes, the one that we've been referred to many times of the Old Testament comes, and he strikes down Sennacherib's entire army, 185,000 men. Hezekiah and the people are delivered. What seemed to be hopeless and doubtful proves to be true. However, with all Old Testament deliverances, this deliverance was only temporary. Years later, Babylon would come. Judah and the city of Jerusalem would be captured and destroyed, and they would be taken off into Babylonian captivity. Hence, the need for the prophecy that we have before us this morning. Judah was needing something, was in need of something more permanent, something more ultimate. They needed not just lowercase deliverance, they needed uppercase deliverance. They were given this prophecy of Micah to show them this hope. And so through Micah, we get this divine announcement of hope in verses 2 through 5. Look with me there. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you shall come forth from me he who is to be the ruler in Israel, whose coming is forth is up from of old, of ancient of days. Skip down to verse four. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord and the majesty of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. Micah gives them first off a place. And this place is a place of insignificance. It was the least among the rulers of Judah. I have a family member who was uh, growing up, we would go visit them. They were from Alma, Georgia. Population 3,500. Occasionally when we were staying there, we would go to the big city nearby called Waycross. Uh, which was 14,000 people. Um, we went there because that's where the Walmart was. Um, and uh, eventually McDonald's. I actually remember vividly in, as a child going and traveling there. And when we rolled up the first time and we saw McDonald's to the right and then had grand opening on it. And we were like, finally, they're moving up in the world. They got a McDonald's. We knew that they finally had arrived. Well, Bethlehem didn't even have a McDonald's. Little old Bethlehem, small, insignificant, underwhelming, back road, country, one stoplight town, Bethlehem. A town so small that it wasn't even on the map. In Joshua 15, there's a list of all the cities that are contained within the tribe of Judah. In that list is 46 cities. There's not one mention of Bethlehem. Not one mention of Bethlehem. Bethlehem, Ephrathah. 
The reason why Ephrathah is added to it is because it had to be distinguished from a bigger and greater Bethlehem. Bethlehem was so insignificant that it had to be distinguished in this way. So not only was it a small, a place of insignificance, but it was a place of humble beginnings. Small towns usually try to have some kind of reputation of some sort. I actually looked up Alma to see what their reputation was. They're known as, their claim to fame is the Georgia's blueberry capital. They're not, they don't even, they can't even claim the U.S.'s um, blueberry capital. It's Georgia's blueberry capital. I looked up, there's places like Tupelo, Mississippi. Some of you all probably have heard of Tupelo. It's known as the birthplace of Elvis Presley. And then there's a favorite of mine now, um, Scott, Louisiana, known for its Boudin, right, Boudin, <laughs> capital of the world. But young adults, that's very heartwarming to us right now because we, we recently were over at the Lipes and they treated us to some, some Boudin and it was delicious. So that was great, right? There's other places like Corbin, Kentucky, the place, the birthplace of KFC and so forth. Well, Bethlehem was known as the birthplace of David. It would be brought to mind, it would have brought to mind to them humble roots, humble roots of David. David, the son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite, the youngest of eight sons, the, the least expected of Jesse's sons to be chosen by God through Samuel to be the next king. David, the shepherd boy whose place was in the fields. At the hearing of the word Bethlehem, God's people and Judah in this immediate context would have been reminded of God's usual pattern of working in the world. His pattern of taking what is insignificant, what is weak, what is lowly, and how he would raise it up, using them in ways just unimaginable, ways that you can't even think of, so that there's no question who is responsible for the outcome. You think of scenarios like Jacob over Esau, right? The, the younger brother being chosen over the older brother. You think about Israel and the nations. We're told in Deuteronomy 7 that it wasn't because, that Israel wasn't chosen because they were in more numbers than the other people, but rather it was because they were the fewest. It was the fewest people. It was because out of God's love for them that he chose them. We think of David, the youngest of eight, the shepherd boy over the Philistine giant Goliath. We think of the New Testament version of this in 1 Corinthians 1.1. It says, for consider your calling, brothers. Consider where you came from when God came and rescued you. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. He chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. He chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring about the things that are. Micah's prophecy not only included a person, or a place that included a person, it was a person known as a standing shepherd. Out of Bethlehem, this place of insignificance, this place of humble beginnings, God is going to raise up a standing shepherd. This shepherd will come in humility and lowliness. He would be with the people. He would walk amongst the sheep. He would feed the sheep. He'd walk with the sheep. He'd live with the sheep. He'd sympathize with their weaknesses and their struggles. And he knew their temptations intimately. 
And not only would he be just be some, any kind of shepherd, he would be a standing shepherd. He would be one, who, we're told in verse 2, whose coming forth is from of old. He would be one in verse 4 who will rule with the strength of the Lord and in the name of the Lord. He would be great all the way to the ends of the earth. No one, including the Magi that Chris mentioned earlier, would know his name. He would succeed in all the ways we fail. He would keep every single commandment. He would faithfully follow God all the way to the end. He would care for and protect his sheep and he would bring them safely home. The result of this standing shepherd will be that we, the passage tells us, that we will dwell securely. He will be our peace. That's the result of having a standing shepherd. And notice this, you could even say, one of the ways that uh, you could translate dwell securely is actually sit. So you could say that because our shepherd stands, we can sit. Because our God, who came in the person of Christ, stands, you and I can sit and trust him in the face of uncertainty and difficulty and pain and challenge and grief. This is what was fulfilled at Christmas. Approximately 700 years later, 400 years, which, by the way, were full of silence between Malachi and the Gospels, there was no prophets, no word of God, utter silence. In 700 years, that would include three exiles, the Syrians, then the Babylonians, and then the Persians. Finally, in Matthew 2, we'll be told that out of Bethlehem was born in a stable, laid in a trough, an animal trough, born from a teenage girl, to an average carpenter from nowhere, Nazareth, out of Bethlehem would come deliverance. Capital D, deliverance. From a child named Jesus who would come and grow up to be a man who would sacrificially lay down his life for his sheep, but who would be raised up three days later and stand before his heavenly father. This is what Micah promises to the people of Judah. This is what we see fulfilled on Christmas in the birth of Jesus Christ. It is because we have a shepherd who stands that we can, in times of uncertainty, in times of difficulty, in times of great temptation, in times of allure, when we're being told that don't believe it, in times when something, we're given an alternative, when we are waiting that we can sit. It's because he stands that we can sit. That is the message of Christmas. Pray with me. Father, Lord, we, we love this time of year. We love that we get to re- be reminded over and over again of the old promise the promise that just never seems to die, the promise that never seems to fade, the promise that in the person of Christ, you have come and became Emmanuel to us. And you brought deliverance, capital D, deliverance, a deliverance that we could not bring ourselves so that we might know you, enjoy you, and rest in you all the days of our life. Lord, we pray that this season we would bask in that promise that we'd revel in it, that we'd live in it, 
in, in the daily temptation and uncertainty and difficulties that we face and that you, Christ, would be our hope. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.